0: Welcome to Orchard Community Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We are glad you are here to learn, grow, and deepen your relationship with Christ. This week's message is brought to you by Pastor Matt Hoyt. I want to begin with a little video clip today. And as we watch this clip, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about, it's very short, but what does this video clip illustrate about human nature? All right, so let's go ahead and watch this. So what you saw there was Joey Manessis, he's the right fielder for the Washington Nationals, and he was gonna do something nice. It was before the game started and they were having warm-ups and he was out in right field and he noticed this group of, of little girls who were from a, a, a softball team and some of them had their jerseys on and he saw one in particular who had her mitt and he decided that he would throw a ball to her. So he does, he throws this ball to her. Now I want you to keep in mind, this isn't a foul ball and this isn't a home run ball. Those are kind of up for grabs, right? Everybody tries for that. But it was clear to everyone in the stadium that the outfielder Joey Manessis was flipping the ball to this little girl and right at the last minute a grown man reaches in front of her, runs over there, reaches in front of her and takes the ball away. Now I know you might be thinking well maybe it was a mistake right? Maybe he didn't know. Well, he did, because after that, a bunch of people in the stands pointed out to him, hey, you just took that ball from that little girl. That wasn't cool. And he he said he didn't care at all, had no remorse whatsoever. I paid for this ticket. I can do whatever I want. So you might ask yourself, why? Why does this guy do this? And, and we're tempted to jump right to, well, he's just a big jerk, right? That's where we're tempted to go. And, and that might be true. Who knows, right? I mean, I, I, we don't know. But there's a simpler answer, isn't there? And the simpler answer has to do with our human nature, doesn't it? So what is the simpler answer that has to do with our human nature? Me first, right, exactly. That we have a broken human nature, a flawed human nature. The Bible calls it a sinful nature. And at the heart of this nature, we tend to think of me first. We tend to be selfish and about ourselves. Now, most of us were raised to try to resist that sinful nature and to seek to to try to do not the selfish thing, but the right thing most of the time. And that's certainly what our faith calls us to do and trains us to do, which is to, to resist our, se- our selfish, sinful nature and to, to t- try to do what is right. But the reality is that we don't always win that battle, do we? There are times when the selfish, sinful nature wins out and we end up doing things that are selfish in, in different ways. And, you know, maybe that's what happened with this guy. Maybe maybe this was just a moment where, where he was gripped by that sinful nature in a way that maybe ordinarily he isn't. We will never know. Now, I do have a question that I wonder about. I wonder, because this clip went viral. It was everywhere. It made the national news and all the major markets so I just wonder if perhaps this guy's attitude, opinion about his actions changed when the whole United States <laughs> noticed. And and if you Google this, the title of the Google is grown man steals ball from little kid. Like that's him now. He's grown man who steals ball from little kid. And I wonder if that, you know, kind of community aspect of understanding what he did perhaps maybe shaped or modified his understanding of his own behavior. We may never know. Now, there is a good happy ending to this story because Joey Manessis, the the outfielder there, he saw what happened and later got connected with her and sent her an autographed baseball. So there's a, a happy ending, isn't there? Yeah, I like that. So this broken, sinful, human nature of ours is one of the reasons that when it comes to life and when it comes to faith, one of the biggest issues that we have to deal with is me. Dealing with this person that I am, that you are. And that's why the title of our series is called Me, Key Spiritual Truths About Ourselves. And with this series, what we're trying to do is just sort out our self-understanding a little bit. To sort out the, the me. And so we're focusing on spiritual truths about ourselves, which shape the way we understand our lives, the way that we live the truth about our identity and our goals, the way we view this world, and so much more. Now, in week one, we focused on the truth that that we are not God, that we are not the center of the universe, that there is a creator, and, and that that creator and sustainer of life is gracious to us and gives us what we need, and our response is an attitude of gratefulness, knowing that we have a creator and it's not us, orients our whole understanding of who God is, who we are, and how we should live this life. Week two, we touched on how, as people of faith, the goal of our lives, that was the creator of our our lives, the goal of our lives is not to live into just the plans that we make, but really to seek to live into the plan that God has for our lives. The creator of our lives the goal of our lives, and then last week was the whole of our lives. And Cody talked about how God's desire is not just for a little bit of our lives, not for a couple of hours on Sunday and maybe, you know, over here or there, but that God wants all of us. He wants the... Every part of who we are, God wants, and God also wants to be a part of everything that we do. God wants to be a part of the whole of who we are and the whole of our lives. And the me often tries to carve out little sections where we say, This is where I'm about God and this is where I'm not, you know, and that's not really what the. What the Lord wants from us. So today we're focusing on the fact that we have this selfish human nature, and it doesn't just affect our lives. We 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 know that. It causes us to steal baseballs from little girls, things like that. But it also really affects sometimes our faith. Many people today are caught up in what I would call a kind of self-focused faith where their, their soul thoughts or their primary thoughts are always about their own faith journey, themselves, what they think and they need, and really not so much on other people. And yet, Christian faith, by definition, is supposed to be lived out in community with other people. That the people in our communities of faith are actually an integral part of how we're supposed to live and learn and grow. And oftentimes we're forgetting that, even pushing it back and wanting to say, it's just me and Jesus. And that's really not God's Design for us. So pray with me and we'll get into this. Loving God, we pray that you'd speak to us today about such a core truth, this selfish, sinful nature that we have that we're always, Lord, pushing back on, trying to, to subdue and to, to do what is right and pleasing to you. And we pray, Lord, that we would think today about how the me, how that selfish person inside often even affects the way that we live our life with you, our faith, Lord. We pray that you'd show us a better way Um, Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a look at our first passage for today. It's Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. And this is the passage that we look at in every single new members class that we have here at Orchard, because it's it's important uh, in a number of ways. But let me read this. This is, again, Romans 12, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes this. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all The others. So in verse 4, the Apostle Paul, the author, offers this image and he's talking about the church. And the image of the church is one of the most famous images for the church in the Bible, and the images of the church as a body. The body of Christ. And so Paul says just like your body has many members or parts to it, hands and feet and things, he says, just like your body has many, many parts or members, so does the church. The church is made up of many different kinds of people. And in the same way that all the different parts of the body do different things, the different people of the church do different things. And this is really a wonderful and fantastic message. Because what Paul is saying is that everybody is unique and different and brings something valuable to our community life together. And, and, and I mean everyone. And, and every time that I preach this, I know that there's somebody sitting there thinking, well, not me. Everybody else has something important to bring, but not me. No, even you, everyone. Maybe you haven't figured that out, but everyone brings something valuable to this community, something that we need, and, and that's really, really important. There's also something else important here. I think one of the things that it means is that there's no Christian mold you know what I mean? There's not sort of how we're all supposed to look and act. I mean, there's some real general ways, but it really is saying we're very different. We do different things. The light of Christ is reflected in our lives in a different way. And that difference, that diversity in the people that we are is really a good thing. And we should work together and understand our differences as a strength, not as a weakness or a detractor. So then in verse 5, Paul says that although the church is made up of many people, again, it's one body. Notice that he calls it one, not a body, it is a body, but he keeps saying one body, and he wants to drive home the point that it's one, that there shouldn't be division in it, that it should be together, that that should be our hope, because Our faith is meant to be lived out in community. In fact, in verse 5, Paul says, Each member belongs to all the others. Each member of the church belongs to all the others. Paul is saying that if you join a spiritual body, that there is a bond there. There's the bond that we share in Christ, but there's also a certain level of commitment that comes with that. There's a sort of sense in which we're saying, I will take care of you, and you will take care of me. We'll be family. We'll watch out for one another. And that's a really important part of how we are supposed to live our lives of faith together. Christianity has never been a solo quest. It has always, always been meant to live, be lived out in community, and community means not just with other people around, you know what I mean? Not just I go to church and there's other people in my vicinity when I do that. Community means relationship. And that means that I am actually knowing these people, that I have a certain level of commitment and care for them. I belong to them and they belong to me. So this key thing I want us to understand is that our faith is designed by definition to be lived together. Christianity following Jesus was never meant and is not now meant to be something that we go off and do on our own. Now, I know right now you're thinking, boy, I know some people who don't think that way. There are a lot of people these days who say, I can follow Jesus, and I can be a Christian, and I don't need the church. And this is one of my pet peeves, because I would say, with all due respect, no, you can't. And I really mean that, no you can't. You can't say that you are following Jesus by ignoring the example he set and the things that he and the scripture tell us to do. Those two things don't go together. So I, I want us to remember how Jesus lived and the example that he set. Jesus went to church every Sunday, Jesus was part of a religious community. Jesus, in fact, was in a small group. Are you? Jesus was in a small I know that's our big thing right now but Jesus was in a small group of 12 guys right he lived his life in community that's the example that he set for us and the scripture says that you should follow Jesus example so if you're saying you don't need community and you don't need the church you are disregarding the example that Jesus set and the scripture that says that we should follow Jesus example you're also disregarding the fact that Jesus instituted the church he said Peter built a church and he empowered the disciples to build a church so that we could continue to live our life in community. And Jesus and the scripture call us repeatedly to do that, to live our faith together. That's what we need to do. Seeking to go it alone is a product of the sinful nature. It's the product of the me getting out of order. The me telling you, You can do this on your own. You got it. Okay, first of all, that's a lie. You don't got it. (laughs) Spiritually, you don't got it. And actually, the statistics prove that. I mean, literally, if you go out there and you poll Christians about their spiritual life and you ask them secondarily about whether they're in a church or not, the, the statistics show people in community do much better spiritually. So that's a lie. But the second of all, it's not the way that Jesus and the scriptures call us to live this life of faith. But there's another danger here. And it's more important for us because we're here, right? Those people who don't think that they need to be here, they aren't here hearing this, but we are hearing this here. And the other danger is this, that we'll be a part of the church, but along the way, this human nature will get out of hand. And we will mostly unconsciously start to begin to think that it's really all or mostly about me and my relationship with Jesus and we can and it's really unconscious we can unconsciously begin to somehow think that all of these other people are just kind of window dressing or props for my spiritual experience here it's great that you're all here but the spotlight is on me well it is right now actually but <laughs> you, you get the you get the you get the metaphor there right that that backfired on me, sorry. <laughs> when we slip into thinking this way, we start thinking that everything in the church should reflect my wants and my needs. It should reflect my opinions about life and faith and social things, and it should reflect my politics. It should... Be about the songs I like. Decisions should be that ser- things that serve me, because after all, it's about me, right? And there you see the lie. So years ago, there was a man who came into my office, a really good man. I want to point this out, a really good guy. He came in and he didn't like something that had happened in the church, and he's. Show, told me what his position was on it. And, and I remember saying to him, um, thank you, I appreciate you, you, you being willing to share your position with me, do you, but do you realize something? And I said, do you realize that the vast, overwhelming majority of the people in the church do not share that opinion? And he he didn't think I was right. He said, y- "Yo, no, no, that can't. And I said, well, let me, let me do that. Why don't you go out and ask a few people and then you come back and we'll talk again. And to his credit, he went out, he did that, he came back and he found out that what I was telling him was true. And what he then said to me was, was something kind of about like this. He said, I had no idea and I am just flabbergasted that anyone would have a different opinion about this than I do. And I didn't say this, but my thought was exactly, because the only person you've really been thinking about is you, unconsciously, not consciously. There, I don't believe there was malice in it. It's just one of those things we slip into. So what we did was we had a really good conversation after that about community and about how we have to get along with one another, even when we don't all share the same opinion on things. And it was a great conversation. And I think this man began to look at other people in the church and the community in a new and a better way. And I I just want us to understand that one of the reasons that God calls us to live our faith in community is that there are things that we simply cannot see about ourselves without other people. We just can't. There is truth about you you cannot know without other people. For example, I had no idea how annoying I was until I got married. (laughs) I had no idea. Suddenly, I became very much more aware of that. I also had no idea, I mean, less jokingly, uh, but I also had no idea how selfish I was until I had children. You know? I mean, that's just, you just, you just, I wouldn't have I needed that relationship to help me see that. And so there's a lot of things about ourselves that we're just never going to see without some people to reflect that to us. Some good things about us, maybe some gifts and talents, but also some maybe some some tough stuff about us that we've got a blind spot to. We really need each other in order to see the full truth about ourselves. And I would also say that there's awful lot we probably won't see about God without the help of others. Because other people bring words from the Lord and ideas and thoughts and, and insights and visions that, that maybe we don't, that we don't have. And, and our life is richer because we seek to live this faith that we have together as we are called to do by the scripture. So let's take a look at our next passage. This is Acts 2 verses 42 through 47. Um, There's a lot in this passage we're not going to be able to get to at all, but I I do want to read this for you. Before I read it, I I, want to set this up, though. I want you to be aware that this passage is the earliest picture in the Scripture, the very earliest picture of the church. It's just maybe months after the church was formed. So it's the very earliest picture of the church that we have in the Bible or anywhere. And, and that's really wonderful to see what the early church was doing way before all the years of church history and culture and layers of things. And so what we're gonna see here is the early practice of the church. Um, again, uh, Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer everyone was filled with with uh, awe at the many signs uh, wonders and signs performed by the apostles all the believers were together in everything and had everything in common they sold property and possessions to give it to anyone in need they, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So right here we get a picture of that community in which we are supposed to live our lives of faith. And as Luke, the author, begins in verse 42, Luke lays out right away four things that he says the early church was devoted to. And that word devoted is really important because it highlights the fact that these were important things. They were proactive. They were seeking to do these four things. Now, I just want us to today, there's so much here we can't do. But today, I just want us to focus on, on, on the second one that it said, that Luke says that the early church was devoted to fellowship. Fellowship. The word in Greek is koinonia. It means sharing. It also means partnership. It means community. It's a communal word. Koinonia, fellowship. So fellowship has always been at the heart of the church. Why? Just because what we said. Because we're supposed to live this faith that we have together. So this means that the Bible studies and the small groups and the classes that we take aren't just about learning. They are about that. And it also means that the potlucks and events that we have and this time we spend together, it's not just about fun. It is about that. But all of these things are also at the same time about fellowship. They're about community. They're about us doing life and faith together. That, that is the model for how we ought to live the faith. The church should be a community in which we are known, in which we are cared for, and, and in which we are loved. That's the richness and the depth to that community. Uh, and, and you can really pick that up in another image that the Bible uses for the church, which is family. Family. The family of God. It captures some of the depth of the kind of community, the kind of koinonia that we, we have. So the church should be a place where we're known, where we're loved, and where we live our lives of faith together like family, even when we blow it and we make mistakes, right? Because that's what family does, Right? That's what family does. Yeah. So, um, but there's, this is where the we, the we, the me gets out of whack. Because the me wants that for themselves. I want you all to love and care for me and love me because that's what I need. But I'm not nearly as interested a lot of the time in doing that all for you. Because other people get in the way, and sometimes they're kind of annoying, you know? So we need to realize something important here, and this is really important. A key part of true fellowship is learning to love flawed people. A key part of true fellowship, the true fellowship of the church, is us learning to love flawed people, and while we're doing that, coming to recognize that we are one of those flawed people. And that is so important because we so easily, we want you to forgive. I want you to forgive me. (laughs) Maybe I don't want to forgive you. I want you to love me. We can turn it into this one-way thing where it's all about us. And that is not the way it needs to be. We need to be willing to live with and love flawed people if we're going to expect them to live with and love us because we are flawed too. And the me forgets that. And this, too, is a part of God's design for how we are to live our faith. We need to learn to love flawed people. Okay, I'm going to go off script here. I'm really a big script guy. You probably don't think that, but it's true. So one of the lessons that I've learned being a pastor, one of the great things about being a pastor is that the vocation forces you to be a better person, all right? I know you all think I'm just a great person, and that's why I became a pastor, right? Well, maybe, but when you get that mantle of pastor, it, there's like this expectation on you to be like a better person. So one of the things, that, one of the things that's on the pastor, and, and any good pastor will do this, is I'm to love all the people. And not all the people, now honestly, some of the people are difficult, right? I still need to love them. Not you, you're a peach, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but I am to love and care for all the people. No one is to be cut out. And so because that is the mantle of pastor, because I have to do that, because I'm pressed and forced to do that, what I have found is that I have grown to love so many people that I never would have if I were not in that position of having to do it. If I had the luxury of saying, not that guy, not that guy, not that like all of you do, guess what? I have a big list of people that are on my persona non grata list, you know? But because I am put in this position where I need to do, or I actually need to do what Jesus said to do, I've found that there's a richness there. I have grown to love people that I didn't think that I would like. I've grown to love people who have hurt me, who know that they've hurt me. I've grown to love people who don't know that they've hurt me, but I know that they've done things that have hurt me. We are so much more capable of loving flawed people than we give ourselves credit for, and we need to pursue that especially if we expect people to love the flawed person that we are. Back on script. (laughs) So let's take a look at Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. We just did a whole series on Hebrews a while ago, but we'll just take a look at these couple of verses here. You might remember Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. The author of Hebrews says this, let us consider how we may stir one another on to, to, um, to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So verse 24, the author of Hebrews basically calls us to encourage one another. Encourage one another by loving God, by loving others, and by seeking to do that which is good. And we, the truth is, need encouragement. We don't do well spiritually on our own, and one of the reasons is we need the support and we need the encouragement of a body of believers. This is also why it says here not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, and we, we, we've touched on that as well. But I want you to notice, first of all here, that the author says that one of the main reasons for us together to get together at church isn't what we get out of it, isn't it? Do not give up meeting together because you won't get all the stuff for you. He doesn't say that. Now, that's part of it. We should hope to get something out of church. But notice that, that the first thing he says is that we shouldn't give up meeting together because of what we can do for others because we can encourage others. Again, of course we're going to get things out of church, and we should. We should We should be blessed by our church, but we should also come seeking to bless others. Look at the second thing here. The author says also uh, about, to be clear about our call to coming to church, that we, we have to, to keep doing it. And there are lots of reasons that people stop coming to church, and we've talked about how you know some people the me gets in the way and they think that they don't need church but but there are lots of issues regarding life together that can be prickly we can be bothered frustrated hurt put off by other people but the author of Hebrews is saying that's not a reason to stop being a part of the community we need to live past those things we need to see past those things to the benefit that is here beyond the difficulty of life together, which I'm also going to address. Um, The truth is that most people who stop going to church don't do well spiritually, as we've mentioned. For one, because you're not doing what Jesus told you to do, and you shouldn't expect that you would prosper spiritually if you're not going to follow Jesus' example and not going to do what he says. But also because we need each other. We, We need the support. And We need this encouragement. And the lie of the we, the me, is I can do this on my own. I don't need other people. There's very little in life that that's true about. There's very little in this life that you can accomplish without other people. And it's certainly not true of our faith. We need other people. We need to remember that, that we need that. So we also need to remember that when we come to church, a key part of our goal should be what can we do for these people? I mean, it's great that we come to, we often talk about come to church and I want to get filled up. Great, but we all should should come here seeking to encourage one another. I want to kind of give you a challenge to say, can you encourage somebody today on the patio after church and live just a little more deeply into the call of this passage? So let's look at Proverbs 27, 17. It's a very well-known proverb. I'm sure that that many of you, once we look at it, would say, oh, I've even got that committed to memory. It's Proverbs 27, 17, and it says that As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And this, this proverb speaks a simple truth, and that truth is that God often uses other people to grow and to shape us. We, we know that. And the thing is, what we do is this, though. This is the thing. We, when we hear that and when we know that reality, we tend to think of it in positive ways, right? We tend to think of those teachers and mentors who've been, you know, good, positive influences on our lives and have taught and guided us in positive ways. And that's true. That's a part of how iron can sharpen iron. But what we fail to realize is that God often uses others through the struggles that we have in life living with them in community to do exactly the same thing, to grow and to shape us. For example, I've often said the line that God seems to just put some people in your life to teach you patience, right? Absolutely. But but seriously, a key part of our spiritual growth comes from the way that God shapes us as we learn to deal with other people. And, and here's a hard reality. It's a true reality. Sometimes the greatest growth in us takes place in dealing with a difficult person or in dealing with a difficult situation that arises when we live with other people. And and we don't really like that idea. We want God to teach us through a really nice person who teaches wise lessons, not through that jerk on the other side of the sanctuary who didn't do X, Y, Z. But that's how God often works. And I want you to think about the image of this proverb, iron sharpening iron. It's metal, literally grating on itself, maybe sparking. It absolutely fits the idea that some of the ways, some of the time that God is going to teach us is as we grate on each other, as we rub up on each other in uncomfortable ways. And the question in those moments is, are we going to respond to this person in a faithful, Christ-like manner or not? Because when we do, that's God using that as an opportunity for us to grow That's one of the really valuable pieces about living in community. And so often today, we can just excise from our life everybody who's different from us and everybody who has a different, everything we don't like. That's one of the great things about church is we come together and we're in this community and it's all kinds of people and some of them aren't like us and we have to learn how to get along and when we do, we grow. And we're better for it. We don't just hang around with people who think exactly like we do. We live in this uh, community of people with all manner of crazy thoughts. Who knows what's going through your mind? I have no idea, you know? So it's a hard but very important truth that the flaws of other people are actually a God's, part of God's plan for your spiritual growth. The flaws of some of the people in this community are part of God's plan for your spiritual growth and the flaws in you are a part of God's plan for the spiritual growth of some of the people sitting around you. So next time you upset somebody, you can say thank you very much. I'm glad to be of service to you in your spiritual growth, <laughs> right? Excellent. Glad we got that out of the way. We're all on the same page with that. But 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 remember, the me tells us that it's not that way that other people who bother me I should I should stay away from them. Uh, I, should, I should leave a community where, they're, you know, it, sh- it says other people are a frustration, they're a hindrance, they're to be tolerated at best, but the path to our spiritual growth leads directly into living in a faith community with other people and all of the positive and negatives that are entailed in that. A couple of quick more scriptures. Look at Galatians 5.13 the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly by love. So the book of Galatians, is uh, the, the, the theme of freedom in Christ is huge. It's about the fact that we're freed from guilt, we're freed from shame, that in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, God wipes clean the slate of our lives and Um, through grace. And so we're set free from having to try to be good enough. All we have to do is rely on the grace of Jesus. And so Paul says, look Galatians and really people of Orchard Church, now that you've experienced God's grace and you've been set free, the last thing that you'd want to do is take that freedom and then use it to sin some more. Because then you'd be just making yourself a slave to sin and you'd be going back exactly to the way your life was before you met Jesus. So Paul is saying, don't do that. Instead, Paul says, why don't you take the freedom that you have and put it to a much better use? And so Paul calls us in this verse to humbly serve others in love. Humbly serve others in love. Part of the reason that we are to live in community together is not only so that we can be encouraged, so that we have the opportunity to humbly serve other people in love. And what we do when we hear that is we tend to focus on the good we can do for someone else. Yes, Jesus, I should humbly serve other people in love because all of these people and all their problems need the help that I can give them. And you know what? There's some truth to that. We can do some good in this world. But what we forget is that God calls us to humbly serve other people in love because, also because of what it does to us. When I submit to Jesus' call to humbly sub- serve other people in love, it shapes and grows my character. First of all, that word humbly I put myself in my place and say, it's not all about me. I'm gonna serve someone else. I'm gonna do what's good for them. My good is done in their life and my character is shaped. We need to live in a community where there is the expectation. A lot of people have no expectation on them. We can live an isolated life where there's no expectation on us to humbly serve anyone else in love. And that's one of the values of this community. And the me misses that point, says it's all about me and I don't need other people. Let's look at last Verse. This is Philippians two, three through five, and the apostle Paul writes this to the Philippian church. Says, uh, "Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Do not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as." Christ Jesus. So this passage is, is just packed with a ton of stuff. I could preach a whole hour on this. But I won't, by the way. Um, but I want us to grab a hold of the main point. The main point of this passage is really Paul saying, let's put the me in perspective. Let's put the me in the proper place. Because what we want to do is put ourselves before other people. What we want to do is put ourselves over other people. And here Paul says, no, we're not to do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but we're to consider others better than ourselves. We're to try to put other people over ourselves. Not that we become a doormat, not that we, you know, just uh, take no care of ourselves. But Paul is saying, instead of, let's reverse the order. Instead of living a me first life, let's live an other first, others focused life as much as we can. And he says that you should think um, not only of your own interests. So he does say we should think about our own interests, but also the interests Of others. And I think what Paul is clearly saying here is that a self-centered approach to life and faith is not God's desire. Paul is saying is this doesn't reflect Jesus' teaching when we're putting ourselves out front, when we're putting ourselves over other people. One of the phrases that we, we say often around here is this, the faith that Jesus calls us to is not a selfish faith. The faith that Jesus calls us to is never just about me. If your faith is just about me, that's a selfish faith because I got news for you. God has plans for this world that are bigger than just you. So the faith that Jesus calls us to is always about other people. It's how am I living with them? How am I treating them? How am I caring for other people? How am I serving other people? God's plan, uh, the the faith that Jesus calls us to includes those things. um, It's good for them but it's also essential because it's a part of God's plan for our growth and our transformation. So one last truth. There was an ambitious farmer, and uh, he was unhappy about the yield of, of corn that he was getting in his crop. And he heard, uh, I don't know exactly how, but he heard about this new corn seed. It was this super corn seed. And so he went ahead and he ordered it, and it was supposed to just produce a, an amazing kind of a, a, a harvest. And um, and so he, he ordered a, a bunch of it. He ordered most of what was available in that area and was going to plant his corn. Now, the other farmers in the area caught wind of this, and they said, hey, brother, can you share some of the seed with us? And he said, no, because he was all about him. He Not only did he not want to share, he wanted to have a better harvest than they did. He wanted to outpace all of his neighbors so he wouldn't share the corn with them. And the first year, that's what happened. He had a banner harvest. It was, it was several-fold greater than all of his neighbors. He was corn king of his little county, you know. But he noticed something. The second year, the, the yield wasn't as good and the third year, old yield year it was even less. And then something occurred to him. He realized that his corn was being pollinated with pollen from all the other inferior corn feed around his. And there's a lesson in that for us. That it's never just about us. That but our life always involves the people around us. Not sharing the corn had an effect on him. And when it comes to community life, the more we give to, build up, and encourage the people around us, the more they will be able to give to, build up, and encourage us. The richer the community life that we build, the richer the community life that we will be a part of, that we will benefit from and we will grow from. So a question, how can God use you to do that, to to help grow the richness of this community? And I want to be clear, we always tend to think it's these big giant acts, you know. It's it's as simple as just building into the life of one single person. That That's that's enough, you know, here and there. It doesn't have to be this huge act. It's coming to church and thinking about what we might, not just about what we might get, but what we might give, how we might encourage and support other people. And, and here's the thing. It, it, it's coming to church and thinking about not just what we might give, but what we might give and do for other people, especially. And I really want you to know that I think this is one of the highest levels of discipleship here. It's coming to the church and saying, whose life can I affect, especially the people that are difficult for you? That's one of the highest levels of discipleship. To say, I'm going to engage in this community, and I'm going to love on the people that are hard for me. That is such a Jesus thing to do, right? That's one of the highest levels of discipleship to invest in people in that way. I want to challenge us all to do that. You want to grow? You want to make an impact? That's a clear way to do it. I think this is Jesus' hope for our life together that rather than being all about me, rather than being all about ourselves, we would be about one another and that in the end, we'd all be much, much better off because of it. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to get ourselves sorted out, to get the me in order, to realize not only that your call for us is to live this faith together, but that that is in fact the far superior way for us to do it. That there is so much benefit, Lord, to us living in a rich community of faith. Lord, we pray that you would help us to build a rich community and to be blessed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.